listening to the Uloft podcast presented by United IUP, a community of college students and young adults in Indiana, Pennsylvania, who are dedicated to unite with each other and Christ to change the world around us. We hope that this podcast raises questions and answers others while ultimately starting a conversation to discover unifying biblical truth in this chaotic world. So are you going to tell me what we're going to talk about? You're just going to hit me with like today's topic and give me some kind of weird right turn freaking. Yeah, I'm actually going to do everything I can to avoid transitions in this podcast. I'm going to make you think you're going one direction and then I'm going to come at you with a question from a totally different direction and see how many of our listeners we can confuse. No, we call that a Jesus juke. We're not doing that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my name is Michael Bond. And I'm sitting across the table from Kendall Kersey. What up? And this is the Uloft Podcast. Okay, so I think we should start with a topic that we actually were talking about before a church service about a week ago. And the topic involves uh, being like a high-capacity intellect and not holding truth as your highest value. Okay, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to unpack this precisely, and then we'll kind of dig into it. I think so much of following Jesus depends on a person's willingness to make the truth their highest value. An intelligent person who holds the truth as his or her highest value may be especially anointed to do great things for the church. But if you value something more than the truth, like power, sex, or money, then your intelligence actually becomes a curse. The reason it becomes a curse is because you will use it as a powerful tool to deconstruct your own faith in service to your power interests. Now, we've talked about how in all your years of doing ministry, many of your peers have sort of, I I don't want to say fallen away, but have stopped doing pastoral ministry. Uh Like they, at one point they believed they, they understood that they were called to do pastoral ministry and then they just turned away from it. Now, that's not to say that they're, they're no longer Christians. That's not to say that they're <clears throat> apostates. It just means that they're no longer doing ministry. Do you think that this idea of pursuing something other than truth is responsible for this, this defection from pastoral ministry? Um, and if it is, how do we protect ourselves against it? Okay, so um, yeah, you're right. I think uh, out of everybody I've ever done ministry with like really closely, that's like, an assistant of mine or a colleague of mine within, um, youth ministry or like, uh, you know, if I was, um, if we came up through school together, we interned together at the same church and, you know, I got a job or they didn't, um, they fell, they fell away. didn't want to do ministry anymore. And like, I kept, I kept going. And that wasn't because, oh, I'm freaking winning and getting the jobs or this or that. Like we were facing the same exact things. Um, and some people have just given up on ministry and, and, uh, I have not. And I think it's like a 99% failure rate, like with mm-hmm. people that I, that I have known. Um, in fact, I would say this last year doing, or this last almost three years doing United is the first time where like, I've had at least one dude, Caleb be with me from the beginning mm-hmm. to yeah. even the present. And so shout out to Caleb, uh, for that. Um, so, and you know, there's obviously not an end in sight for him. So like, that's really good. He's doing a really good job at this as well. Um, but so to your point, as far as seeking truth, 
um, and keeping that as the uh, primary goal. Um, do I think it has a do I think it has a correlation to these guys not being ministers anymore? Um, I would say only a few of them. Right, yeah. like only a few of them, and I think uh, it, it's hard to tell because I, I, may, maybe you could help me connect the dots here. But what I think is, they believe one thing about ministry, mm-hmm. or about uh, let's take out ministry out of it about following Jesus. They believe one thing about following Jesus, and then they get hit upside the face with that truth, quote unquote, that reality actually isn't a reality. And so then they freak out and then they give up. That's what I've seen more. So what I would say is their neglect to actually be open to what is really true is what is a part of their downfall. Yeah, so they cling to a presupposition going in and then when they find out that presupposition is wrong, that's where it's like, okay, well, I just need to back off entirely. I need not not do this at all. And I think that some of that comes from starting out doing ministry for the wrong reasons. So, um, okay, so here's an example. I think it's possible that people who go into pastoral ministry, they go into it under the illusion that they are mostly good. They're mostly a good person. And so like the success that they have is associated with their character. And I think that the pastors of churches who are bringing up other pastors are partially responsible for people thinking this because they, they consider character as like one of the foremost, uh, important things to look for in a potential pastor is like, okay, well, what's the person's character? It's like, well, if you do that, I get why we do that because we don't want particularly evil people being in places of pastoral authority, like, you know, pedophiles, for example. Um, but the problem with, with attaching so much importance to character is that once a person is like three to five years into their pastoral ministry and they're doing a good job, they think that the reason why their success is there is because of their character. And so then if they have a moral failure or they have a sin that they're dealing with, then they feel like everything that they did is torn down because all of it was dependent on their character. And the difference, I think, at least from my perspective, going into this, um, it was never about my character. Like I, 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 to, to put it bluntly, I believed that I was a scumbag before I started doing pastoral ministry. And I don't really think that like any, any measures of growth that I've experienced are, that's the Holy spirit working through me and transforming my heart. Um, and because he is the agent in that, if I run into a situation where it's like, oh, you're not really as far along as you thought you were. Well, all that does is just further increase my dependence on the spirit of God. It it shows me that I need Jesus even more than I thought I did. It doesn't, it doesn't show me that, oh, you're not cut out for pastoral ministry because you had this issue or you had this thing that you're going through. And I think that so much of the reason why people come away from doing pastoral ministry is because they get to that point where they're just like, okay, well, I'm not good enough to do this. Yeah. Okay. So let's even say you bring up a great point because most of the people listening to this uh, are not considering pastoral ministry and they're not in pastoral ministry, but this is a phenomenon that is present even within just 
everyday Christianity. Um, because now you said that uh, many of the people that I, that I served with, served alongside uh, in ministry are not um, apostate and whatever, like deconstructed their faith. Um, you would be wrong. Most of those people have actually done a significant deconstruction of faith. And um, I don't know their heart, so I still love them a lot. And uh, in fact, one of them uh, had a birthday yesterday and I texted him, love you, dude miss you. Happy birthday. Um, and I meet with them as much as I can. They live in Texas. So, but I meet with them as much as I can. And, um, so I still love the dude, but I don't know that like he is a Christian. Uh, he's definitely not doing the things that, um, that a person of the body of Christ would be doing, for instance, like actually being a part of the body of Christ and going to church and, right. you know, being disciplined in his, um, in his faith as he believe in Jesus. Absolutely still. So I guess on that mark, like, yeah, I guess he's a Christian cause he still believes in Jesus. But I would say the, the majority of the ministers that I've worked with that have gone away are like him where they still love Jesus in a sense, quote unquote, they love Jesus. They still like I won't even say love. They like Jesus. They like the thought of Jesus. They like the thought of the gospel. Um, but they have decided to deconstruct their the more fundamental issues of the faith, um, fundamental disciplines even of the faith. And so I've also witnessed many believers that I've pastored, uh, whether it be in youth ministry or worship ministry or now young adults ministry, um, I've witnessed a lot of believers that have done the exact same thing, that their belief of Christianity and following Jesus was different than what reality actually is. And so when we when re, their reality ultimately shifts and has to shift and align with what is actually true, um, they don't like that anymore. And so they say, well, this is where we get the relativism, you know, relative truth is that, well, my truth says this, but you're saying that your truth says this, you must be wrong. Or, well, the Bible must be wrong. I don't agree with that. So, man, the Bible has to be wrong. It has to be antiquated. It has to be something that, well, they just didn't understand what we'd be going through in the year 2022. Like, that's a bunch of bull crap. Um, because that leads you down a road to not following Christ any longer. It will. It, it won't... It won't uh, it's not even like a, it might, it will. It will lead you to not following Jesus because you're always considering, you're always considering that you're the only one that can be right and that no one else yeah. can be. And so that's going to lead you down the wrong road. So the point, this is interesting because so essentially the point along which, the point in your journey along which your motivation to move forward is self-interested when you run into a part of the faith that doesn't serve yourself, you're taken all the way back to that very first initial point where the self-interest took over to begin with. And then that's where you unravel. So, cause, because I'm thinking like that, because you said that your pastoral friends didn't just back off of pastoral ministry, they backed off of the faith entirely. And so you can imagine a reality in which someone um, maybe grows up in church and their involvement with the church is not necessarily self-interested, but then they see pastors like on stage, they have the lights on them, like people want to talk to them, they're popular inside the church, all that stuff. And then that sparks up motivation in somebody to become a pastor, but that motivation happens to be self-interested. Um, and so 
when that person becomes a pastor, like it could take a long time, like a long time of relative success before like the, the, the shoe drops. And then it's like, oh, uh oh, this isn't serving myself anymore. And then it takes them all the way back to that moment where they were first looking at upon other pastors and they had that spark of self-interest and they're like, and they go all the way back to that and then they unravel. And so it might be the case that they go back to that point and they unravel, but they don't go all the way back to their Christianity and unravel unless their Christianity itself has always been self-interested. And then they just lose the whole thing. Okay. So that's a good, so you're right. The self-interested Christianity, I would say, um, if if someone gets into Christianity and starts following Jesus for their own self-interests, okay, good. You should. Like, that's how you should get into it uh, in to some degree, right? Is like the self-interest of, I am not righteous. I am not right. I need to be made right. I don't want to be separated from God forever. Yeah. Uh, I want to accept his love and I want to be free and I want to be forgiven. And so I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and I'm going to follow him. Now, it starts there. And I think if you were to argue that it doesn't start there, um, we'd get into a long discussion about that because I think everybody starts with the self-interest of, yeah, life sucks right now. Maybe there's an option for it to be better. The problem is though, that many people stay there mm-hmm. and they don't move from, okay, I'm following Christ because of my own self-interest. Oh wait, following Christ means to sacrifice my own desires. Following Christ means to take up a cross and follow him. Following Christ means that I've got to kill my flesh. Like my, uh, I've got to try to, you know, beat temptation, uh, and not, you know, uh, not do what I want to do all the time. Like I actually have to listen to my conscience now. Well, that's not self-interest, or at least in the uh, common sense, it's not self-interest. I would argue that in at the end of the day, it actually is. Like it, you are bettering yeah. yourself at the end of the day because you are following the uh, promptings of the Holy Spirit. But if it always is, if if your Christianity is always, well, I don't want to burn in hell, and so I'm just going to do the bare minimum requirement so I don't burn in hell. Well, that's a problem, and a lot of people. Um, or number two, actually. Um, so you have the turn or burn people. I don't want to burn in hell, so I'm going to follow Jesus. Then you have the, you're promising me a better life. You're promising me this wonderful, blissful, freaking rainbows and unicorns and daisies in a field life with Jesus. Uh, we've talked about the phenomenon of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of idea. Like, you mean I get to have a, a wonderful, you know, relationship with this perfect human being? Well, absolutely, I want that. Like, that's a problem if we stay there too, because that promise of the gospel is only a partial truth. It's not a full truth. And so um, I think that's what what drives a lot of people into deconstruction or into uh, losing their faith altogether or renouncing their faith in a sense is because we are promised we are promised and or we get into Christianity because of a a salesman, a salesman's pitch of, does your life suck? Well, guess what? It can be better. Do you feel constricted? Well, guess what? You can be free. And then we stop there and we don't ever disciple ourselves or or have somebody disciple us. And we don't get into the disciplines of reading the scripture and allowing the scripture to, to permeate through our body and through our mind and through our spirit to actually change the way as Romans 12, one says, the renewing of our minds. Like we don't allow that to happen. And because we don't allow that to happen, we decide when, you know, stuff hits the fan, well, I guess all that was a lie. 
I'm supposed to have a better life. Why don't I have a better life? Why does my life still suck? Why is there still hard circumstances? I mean, last week or uh, last episode, we talked about uh, demoralization. That leads to demoralization of, yeah, but I thought I was promised life and life more abundant with Jesus. And the scripture does say that. Absolutely it does. I thought I wouldn't have to deal with this addiction anymore because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Well, yes, all of that is true. But the reality is those things have to be worked out through the process of life. And at the end of the day, you're not, you're not completely free of sin until you die and go to heaven. So yeah, you're set free and free indeed. But that doesn't mean you're free from the consequences of this world, the consequences of sin, until you die, until you go to heaven. So we have this mindset that everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns. Everything's going to be just absolutely blissful if I start following Jesus. And that's not always the case. What the case is, is that even when I experience crappy circumstances, even when I experience something that should demoralize me, the joy of salvation that I felt in the first moment of salvation is my hope. That I might not feel joyful as far as like exuberant joy and I'm just happy, clappy, jumping around all over the place. But my soul still finds joy in the fact that even though life sucks right now, there's hope because I I have a hope in Christ. And one day, none of this stuff is going to matter. And one day, I'm going to live with God eternally, and I'm going to be at complete peace, and I'm going to be at complete rest, and I am going to be completely free, and I'm going to have a new body, and it's going to be great. Like, we have to keep our mindset focused on that stuff, but because we've constructed this narrative of perfection within Christianity, it everything is ultimately going to fall short of that. And so when it does... We don't know what to do with it. And that goes back to even your point about the character thing. Like if I've constructed this false narrative of my character is so perfect and so high, and then I screw up, well, now who am I? Well, I've put my identity all in my perfection, quote unquote. Well, I can't do that. My identity has to be in Christ's perfection. You know, my, my narrative and my reality has to be in how did, how did Jesus go about life? Jesus had an abundant, free, sin-free, beautiful life. But guess what he didn't have? He, was, he didn't have a home. He didn't always know where his next meal was coming from. He didn't, uh, he didn't win the popularity vote uh, by the end of his life. Uh, he actually completely lost the popularity vote to yeah, a guy yeah. who was a, a, a thief. <laughs> um, and so like, if we look at the life of Jesus, it's like, oh, that's what Christianity actually is. It's becoming Christ-like and Christ had to suffer. Like he, yes, he enjoyed great times with friends and good moments and God moments and miracles. But he also died and he also rose again, which is a part of our life. We die to ourselves. We are resurrected with Christ, both in the spiritual and eventually in the physical in heaven. And we have to keep that that narrative because it's true. That's what the real truth is. So when you face problems and when you face hard circumstances, you can't say, what the heck, God? I thought it was supposed to be good. Where's my life abundant? No, right. we look for the joy in the midst of those circumstances and we we hold on to the truth that that I said it last week, James, rejoice in sufferings. Like in in Romans, your your uh your perseverance is gonna produce strength, is gonna produce hope. Like those are the things that are happening in our lives, but we don't want it that way. We want it to be all perfect, all wonderful, blissful, no issues. I'm free of everything. Everything's perfect. And the church as a whole perpetuates this 
notion. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't want to come to church because they think it's full of perfect people. And that's because somewhere along the way, Christians, the body of Christ decided that that was the barometer. That was the, uh, or not the barometer. That was the, uh, you know, the limiter for you to be a Christian. Well, you got to be perfect. Holy as God is holy. So you better be perfect. That's not what holy means. Holy means set apart, not perfect. Yeah. So I, I like your point. And I think that the distinction that you've made really precise here is that self-interested motivation as an on-ramp to Christianity may not necessarily be wrong because that's essentially what Pascal's wager is. It's the same kind of deal. Um, and I think that what you're saying is that if your aim is self-interest, if your end goal, if the thing you're aiming at is self-interest, that's where you start to run into problems because then you're plotting a course that's going in the wrong direction. And then once you realize you've gone in the wrong direction, you feel like everything that you've done has been a lie or you feel betrayed by God or you feel like, like stuff's coming down around you. And so yeah. like a good, a good um, question to ask then would be, um, say that you're in a situation where you're struggling with a sin that people or the culture or the church perceives to be shameful. So uh, like I'm always careful about assigning degrees to sin biblically, mm-hmm. but I do think it's the case that culturally, even in the church, uh, people, there is a perception of degrees of shame associated with certain sins. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're stuck dealing with one of the ones that is perceived as shameful. Um, how, what are some ways that you can maintain confidence to stay in church and keep close to your brothers and sisters in Christ while struggling with this sin, or even while just being tempted by such a sin? Like what can a person do who's in that situation to keep themselves from just drifting off course? Yeah, so I think it's twofold. I think um, the responsibility falls on, if you're the one dealing with the sin, the responsibility falls on you, and the responsibility also falls on your Christ-centered community or the people in the church. So the responsibility that you have is to know, and I'm going to beat the crap out of this dead horse until the day I die. You have to know the scripture well enough (laughs) to understand that even in the Bible, that it is clear that sin is sin to God. Sin is sin to God. Some sins have different consequences bodily. Some sins have different consequences emotionally. Some sins have different consequences uh, culturally. And and so any kind of degree of sin is set up culturally. But to God, which by the way, is the only person that matters, the only opinion that matters, to God, it's all the same. So what you have to do is you have a responsibility to understand that um, to, to use your words, Michael, is there are snakes in everyone. Like everybody has crap that God has to save them from. And to God, it's all the same. It does not have a different payment. It does not, like Christ paid for all sin. His death paid for everything. It didn't just pay for the worst of sins or the least of sins. It didn't do that. It paid for all sin once and for all. Hebrews talks about that. And so you have to have an understanding that I cannot be judged by someone else who's also going to the same thing. God is the only, and the same thing meaning any type of sin because God is the judge of all of us, right? And so with armed with that, armed with that knowledge, your responsibility is to, is to then use that and not judge anybody else and not, presuppose upon them of, well, they must hate me. They must not think that I'm worthy to be in their presence, or I can't come into church now because all those people are going to judge me and blah, blah, blah. No, you have to trust 
that we all have the same understanding of the fact that Christ died for every single one of us and we all suck and we are all in need of a savior. And so there, there shouldn't be any judging being thrown around. There is a uh, conviction. There's help and conviction. There's people who help uh, to convict you even, um, not in a mean way, not wa- waving a finger, but saying, hey, man, you know, you're better than that. I, I, I know I've seen you. God's moving in your life. Like there's more that God has for you than this particular thing because it's causing death in these areas or whatever. So you have to trust the people. You have to trust the body. You have to trust the word of God. It, that's where faith is, is enacted, right? Is, is trusting the word of God, that it's all the same, trusting the people that you, that also profess Jesus. Um, and then again, trusting God enough that if you are in a community or you are surrounded by people who aren't loving and compassionate and restoring a brother or sister in Christ gently, I think that's in, uh, either first first or second Peter or Timothy. Uh, it's in one of one of either the Pauline apostle or Pauline epistles or in Peter. Um to restore somebody gently. Um if they're not doing that, then it's time to find a different community. But it's not time to run away from the community uh, or from the the body of Christ as a whole. Now, the other responsibility of that is the people in the body of Christ. The mm-hmm. people who are around the people who are struggling. Because guess what? All of us are struggling and are around someone else who is struggling. So what we have to do is our responsibility is exactly the same as the person who is running through the temptation. We have to trust that only cultural degrees of sin, or there are only cultural degrees of sin, but as far as the payment of sin goes, um, there is not a degree of sin. And we are in the same boat as the person who is struggling with the quote unquote worst kind of sin right now. And we are in, the, in need of the same savior and we are in need of the same uh, redemption and restoration. And so there is no need for us to judge others because God is the judge of them ultimately. Now, that is not to say that I cannot speak up into somebody's life that I have relationship with to say, hey, there's something better for you than this. You know, this is not right, but I'm not going to condemn you for it. I'm not going to say, hey, this isn't right. And guess what? If you don't shape it up, you're gone. You have to leave. You can't be a part of this community anymore. You can't be a part of this church anymore. There are biblical grounds for that, but that's when somebody doesn't want to uh, repent. They they say that sin is not sin, and they're just like, nah, forget it, I don't care. But even through that, the responsibility of the Christian is to be loving and to at one at some point, if they do, if the person does want to turn around and repent, is to be there with open arms, like the uh, the prodigal son and the father in that in that um, in that story. We cannot be the we cannot be the other son in the prodigal son story right? Mm, The other son in the prodigal son story said, oh, I've been doing all this for you this whole time. And you didn't even give me a fattened calf and blah, blah, blah. And the father says, bro, chill out. Everything I have is yours. It has been yours. It's been here since the day you've, you've been born. All of this stuff has been yours, but this dude, your brother was far off and he recognized that he needed to repent. And so we're going to throw a party for him because he was far off and has come now back to the family. You've been here all along. You've already had the parties. You've already uh, enjoyed the uh, the festivities. You've already enjoyed all that I have to offer. But this person left it and came back. And so now we're gonna rejoice. And we have to have that mindset responsibility and, and responsibility wise on both sides of that fence. Because at some point in your life, probably multiple times, you're gonna find yourself on either side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the other brother in that story kind of to me represents Christians who 
haven't had the heart transformation in the sense that they actually at bottom they still really want to be sitting but they're they're avoiding it they're, tr- they're performatively trying to avoid sin so it's re- really the behavior modification idea um and so then that's where the resentment comes from because their heart's desire is to continue yeah. doing all these sins but they're like they're, they're sort of trying to image craft and virtue signal and stuff and they're, they're putting a lot of effort into that and so they, they really haven't actually been sanctified they're mm-hmm. just trying to appear sanctified so when someone is brought back into the into the church by way of grace that's where they get they just blow up they're all like uh you mean i could have been sitting this whole time and yeah, then come back yeah, and still yeah. got a party yeah <laughs> like, right that's, that's what they, yes that's exactly that's what they yeah. feel like which isn't true by the way <laughs> but yeah. that's what they feel like i i am convinced that if you if you have not had a realization that you are the prodigal son at some point then uh then I, I'm not sure how much heart transformation has happened. Right. Well, yeah. You know, so. And again, I can't, I can't judge that, but I don't know how much heart transformation has happened if you haven't had a prodigal experience or at least seen yourself as the prodigal son, even if you've, even if you never grew up in church and just became a Christian. So like for you, like you didn't go, you didn't go to church uh, as a kid or you weren't a Christian as a kid. Um, so your experience, quote unquote, wouldn't be prodigal, but you can see yourself in the character of the prodigal son because you know you could see yourself as at one point at the beginning of time we were all connected to christ or we all connected to god as the father sin came and entered the world that means every one of us has become prodigals and now as we return the father is open so like if you can't see yourself in that way man heart transformation is really hard yeah yeah wow um so i think people who have gone through a lot and who have been forgiven much even if they're not able to articulate this, they have a natural tendency to be more forgiving of other people. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why people who are dealing with a difficulty, whether it's a tragedy, whether it's a sin or whatever it is, they tend to gravitate towards other people who have also gone through that because of that. uh, Even if it's not at the level of cognition, it's if it's subconscious, there's some kind of understanding between the two people. And yeah, they, they, they feel like, okay, well, this person can forgive me for what I'm doing and they can actually know what they're forgiving because they've experienced this, a similar thing. So I think that that's, uh, yeah, we should all try to get into that spot if we can. Um, and that doesn't mean that we need to thrust ourselves into tragedy and that we need to, you know, go out and commit a whole, you know, raft of sins just to get experience with those things so that we can then forgive other people. Like we shouldn't use it, use, use utility of it that way. Um, but I do think it's, I do think it's pretty important. We talked a lot about, um, like what to do on the other side of that scenario. Like if you're not the one who feels shame, but you're the, the, the person, um, responsible for working with or dealing with the person who feels shame and trying to encourage them to stay into the church. I think some of this too is like, uh, and, and let me know what you think about this. And that, this might be a good place to land. Um, how much of this is associated with separating the self from the actual sin? So for instance, uh, I think it's possible to go into like a Bible study or a room full of Christians knowing that you are struggling with a sin and not feel shamed in that moment. Um, as long as you view yourself as a person who is struggling with a sin or is practicing a particular sin, not identifying with the sin itself. Like that's, that's huge. I mean, and, and it's really huge now because 
culturally we're being pushed to identify with not only identify with sin, but take pride in that identity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can go back to the church if you're, if, if that's how you're doing it. I, I think it'll just be crushed by shame all the time until you're gone. Yeah. So what do we do about that? Like do at, fr- as from the leadership standpoint, how do we encourage people to uh, understand the separation of self from sin so that we can effectively condemn the sin um, without condemning the person. Like this is so cliche. Like yeah, but know, that's but, so. You, what sucks is you said, "How do we as leadership do that?" We can't, because all we can do is like present the truth. I can present the truth that Galatians two twenty says that it's no longer. Uh, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I, I've crucified my flesh. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? Like we can say that all we want to. We can say that our identity is found in Christ. If you have put your trust and hope in Christ Jesus, if you've made him Lord of your life, your identity is in him. But it be, it it the onus is on the person who is feeling the shame to actually identify with their sonship, essentially, um, even if you're a girl, your sonship, because again, you're viewed like Jesus, like your sonship is so important. This is actually something I missed out on so much in my early years of ministry and of, of being a Christian. I didn't recognize this until really about four or five years ago of what it meant to be a son of father God. Like I, I, I identified with my sin in, in so much as like, all I knew was shame because I couldn't, I did, I couldn't separate that. Oh, this is just who I am. I'm, I'm this person. And I had to recognize like, no, you are seen as righteous and holy as Jesus is. And like, it wasn't until I was started to be told those things and be reminded of those things over and over and over again until I saw myself that way. And so like, really the onus is on the person who has the shame and to say like, Am I going to believe this or am I, am I not? I cannot do anything to force you to believe that. All I can yeah. do is present the truth and then present the truth again and then present the truth again and then present the truth again and look at you and say, that's not how I see you. You know why I don't see you that way? Because God doesn't see you that way. Yeah. And it's not a it's not me being insensitive. It's actually me being as sensitive as I possibly can be to say, I don't see you this way. You are not your sin. And this doesn't have to be a sexual thing either. It doesn't have to be a sexual orientation thing because we're kind of alluding to that, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be something else. You're No, you're actually not a liar. You know who you are? You're a son of God. No, yeah. you're actually not a cheat. You know who you are? You're a son of God. You're not a gossip. Don't say, oh, well, I just, you know, I just, I'm a, I'm a gossiper all the time. No, no, you're not. You are a son of God. You're a child of God if you've put your trust in Jesus. And so I think, well, okay, let me back, let me backtrack a little bit. If there is any responsibility on the leadership, it is to continually affirm what is true identity. Yeah. That is what we have to do. In fact, our whole our whole series, um, or not our whole series, our whole theme for this year, for the year of twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three at United, is uh, is bastardized identity, and the reason. Now you might hear that and be like, "Oh, 
you said that you're a pastor, you're a church. You're like, you're, you're not a church. We're not a church. Uh, you're a ministry. And a you said people just had the Hank Hill reaction. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, what? Okay. Bastardized means that you're a fatherless in bastardized identity means that you don't have an identity because you don't have a father. But what we're trying to teach people is that no, actually God made us in his image and, and God, the father gave us an identity but we ourselves have bastardized that identity because we've rejected him as a father. We've rejected our sonship. We've rejected um, our inheritance as being a child of God. And so therefore we align with a different identity instead of aligning with the identity of God. So as a leadership group, we have to remind and affirm people of what their identity is in Christ or what it can be in Christ. And that doesn't mean going up to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and being like, uh, you have a fault. You have identity problem. Um, you need to be made right with God and like being rude about that. We're not gonna. We're not gonna do that. I'll play the long game. I'm not gonna tell somebody to turn or burn. I'll play the long game with people. In a sense, like there is sanctification that has to happen, and I cannot do anything about that. Yeah. It has to be on them and the Spirit of God to sanctify them. All I can do is preach the truth. All I can do is affirm the truth. All I can do is look them lovingly in the eyes and say, look. I don't condemn you as Jesus did to the adulterous woman in John. I don't condemn you. I'm not accusing you, but go and sin no more. You don't have to do this because this isn't your identity. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing in that moment was saying, when he said, go and sin no more, he's saying, this isn't you. You're not an adulterous woman. That is not your name. Like I'm not accusing you. No one else is accusing you here. They're gone. Go and sin no more. Meaning your identity is not in this. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, we are getting closer to the first night of United. Let's just remind everyone when, where, all that. Man, I wish I knew where. Uh, right now, the first night is August 30th, uh, 727. Hey, we're going to have a taco truck. It is the ultimate taco Tuesday. Um, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be free tacos for the first few people who get, not few people, probably like 50 people who get there. Um, so you're going to want to make sure that you're out there. We have two perspective locations right now. I can tell you right now, it's going to be in Indiana, Pennsylvania, around the four block radius that is IUP's campus and Philly Street. <laughs> so uh, I wish I had a full answer right now, but um, I will be getting that out on social media. So make sure you don't miss out. We're doing something we've never done before uh, for the first night, actually. We're doing, um, you might like, if you've come to United, be like, oh yeah, we're gonna do this like deep worship stuff and like there's gonna be a sermon, it's gonna be great. We're actually not doing that. Um, we are in some ways putting on more of a performance and a concert uh, that has a very, very profound meaning to it. Um, so this is something that if you are uh, if you are an, a regular attendee of United, you need to be inviting someone who's never been to United or never been to a church because this is something that's totally different than what we've really done before. So yes, there's yeah. still music. Yes, there's still someone speaking, but it's a totally different way. Um, and I want you to be a part of that. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. Also, come out and join us for a Unite every Tuesday at 7.27 p.m. This is a time of music, friends, and important teaching. You don't want to miss it. You can learn more about Unites, as well as everything else we do, by visiting unitediup.com. Thank you all for hanging out with us, and we will see you in the next episode.